Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. A kiddie crime wave. A smoking robot who's into sex kittens. The art of fatigue. The forgotten meaning of sweating. An aspiring Aussie assassin takes a pot shot at a British royal. And an American female sports champ gets no respect from the Australian press. All that and more is coming up. I'm Michael Adams. I'm Mick Gloovy. This is The Wayback Week and we're about to take a deep dive into stories from the first week of June 1939. So it's June 1939, Hitler's banging the war drum ever louder. The British government's still hoping there can be peace talks. But that didn't work out so well. A lot of other things were happening 80 years ago this week, though, so let's get into our first story. Shall we go to the New York's World Fair? Let's go to the fair. Woohoo! So the fair had started in, I think, late April of 1939, but by our week, the first week of June, it mm-hmm. was in full swing. Yeah, and the future had arrived. The future had arrived. There was a exhibit called Futurama, mm-hmm. which didn't have Bender, the drunk robot, Sadly, but no. there was there was a good robot on offer. Oh, this robot, Electro with a K. I present to you Electro, the Westinghouse Motorman. What was he? Seven foot tall, Seven made of aluminium, mm-hmm. glowed sort of a lovely sort of shade of gold. Quiet, please. I'm doing the talking. I'm sorry. That's the most remarkable thing I've ever seen. He's very burnished looking, isn't he? Yes, yeah, yeah. And handsome. He was described as handsome, I believe. Fine Roman nose. Fine Roman nose. He could walk, he could talk, and he could... The showstopper, he could smoke. Yeah. Smoke, not just smoke, but, quote, exhale like a veteran. I don't know what that means. Yeah. Is that a war veteran or just someone who's just smoked a lot? So is he blowing smoke rings? I don't don't think he blew smoke rings. Yeah. But he could blow up balloons. But I'd like to imagine that after a while his his balloon blowing sort of fell by fell away thanks to his, you know, pack a day habit. Funny thing to design a robot and go, okay, well, imagine it must have been extremely difficult. This was a real robot. It actually Mm. responded to verbal commands, not the words. But the pacing of the words, the intervals between the words, apparently. Yeah, so it was but he had like bellows inside him right. for the for the smoking. Yeah, it, like it must have been difficult enough to make this thing walk and talk, and it could count on its fingers. Mm. But then it's like, oh, you know, our R and D guys have got a bit of time on their hands, so why don't we see if we can also make it smoke? Mm. An odd thing to do, but I guess it is the nineteen thirties. Everyone, everyone smoked. Well, hang on, they thought, what what do we get to do? That's just normal, like a human. So the robot, Electro, had, Electro had a career, a brief career in the movies. Many years later, starring in a, a sort of raunchy for the day sex comedy, Sex Kittens Go to College. Inside the secret digital computer room at Collins College, where Thinkle, the electronic brain, is given the unheard of task of selecting the most qualified professor to head the science department. And who does Thinkle pick? 
a tantalizing dancer straight from the Las Vegas Strip. And I really hope that there is a scene in there that's, you know, after the sex scene and there's Electro just kicking back with a smoke because he is the smoking robot. <laughs> <laughs> the tagline for Sex Kittens Go to College was, you never saw a student body like this. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Right. Sadly, the poster, Mamie Van Doren and Tuesday Weld, are both billed as is Mijanu Bardo, helpfully described as Bridget Bardo's sister. Wow. Electro, not billed. Not oh. No. Oh, monkey. On the poster, there's a monkey with sunglasses. That's robotist. That's robotist, you're mm, right. That's outrageous. I do like the fact that after the World Fair resumed in 1940, after the winter break, mm. that um, Electro got a companion animal. Mm-hmm. Non, non-smoking, I think. A non-smoking pet little dog called Sparko. Sparko. Yeah. Oh, who delightful. was who was apparently, yeah, far less complicated as a, a internally, not not nearly as smart. Couldn't talk but could bark. Could bark. Couldn't smoke, right. which is a massive oversight. Yeah. I mean, what's the point of a yeah. robot that doesn't smoke? <laughs> <laughs> so, an Australian newspaper, The Wellington Times, ran a piece in the first week of June about Electro. So it described Electro as being the dawn of a new age. Quote, an age of robots. Imagine an army composed of Electros armed to the teeth, which will receive an order and march on to obey it, unable to turn back or to surrender. Science jumps ahead of wisdom, and the world might well wonder uneasily what the future holds in store. Spooky. Terminator. Mm -hmm. But we're talking about this stuff now. Killer Mm -hmm. robots acting autonomously. Yeah, that's right. We've got the drones and all that sort of stuff. But none of them smoke. None of them smoke. What what are are we thinking? We've gone backwards. Mm. Of course, Electro didn't walk very fast at all, so it would have been a very slow march. Walk a few steps, cough, walk a few steps. Count. Mm. Count. Count on your... Roboty fingers. Mm, with Sparko following along. With Sparko following along, yes, mm. that's true, yeah, yeah. Going to war. Going to war. For the sex kittens. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a vision. Striptease was also a big part of the World Fair this week. There was mm. a big controversy in the States, which made it into the Australian newspapers, about the amount of nudity at the World Fair. There were all these full-on strip shows... Nudity is a thing of the future? Is yeah, that what they were saying? I think so. In, in the future, we're all going to get our gear off. Yeah. Right. Salvador Dali had a, a big exhibit there as well. Really? Uh, yeah. Really? Massive exhibit. And um, he didn't get his floppy clock out. He didn't get his floppy clock out, no. <laughs> That's hard to say. It is hard to say. It's hard to say correctly, but he did have sort of dances that were sort of uh, in G-strings and things like that, which did create, again, a bit of an uproar. Mm-hmm. Mm. I'm sure that um, the controversy surrounding the naked ladies of the World Fair mm. were actually good for business. I, I reckon the World Fair people weren't exactly disappointed no. that the nudity was being yeah, talked about around the world. The word sweating, what does it conjure for you? Kind of what I'm doing a little bit right now. Yeah, right. I oh, ran right. out of links this morning. So oh, dear. I'm a little... Well, see, fragrant. I was going through the paper from this week and thinking, this is a strange headline on the front page to prevent sweating, preference to unionists. And it goes on to give quite a, a complicated account of a, a, a court story about uh, granting awards for 
workers. And I looked into this and realised that this is from this is sweatshops. So they're talking sweating. So the word itself doesn't exist anymore in that sense. We don't use sweating to mean to employ workers at low wages for long hours or under unfavourable conditions, which is, I tracked it down as the 13th definition in the Macquarie Dictionary. And yet we still have sweatshops. We know what they are. Absolutely. And it's an evocative term that's fantastically, you know, real the way it does it. But this term, sweating, is, is it's fallen by the wayside, even though back in 1895 Australia had the Anti-Sweating League, this fantastically named group of social reformers who were out to protect workers' rights, headed up by, as treasurer, none other than Alfred Deakin. Alfred Deakin, who was a mystic in his spare time, mm-hmm an occultist, and who went on to be a second Prime Minister. Yes, he also happened to be second Prime Minister. Uh, so, uh, what, ten years on from this, when he was heading up the Anti-Sweating League, uh, he was PM. What also caught my eye was that at 13th, that was the that was the definition, uh, at number 13, the Macquarie, under sweating, coming in at number 16, to borrow someone's horse without permission. Another long lost, sadly long lost, definition of sweating and i guess that happened it sounds really random as the young people would say now mm. but i guess that probably happened quite a bit back in the day oh, like damn. you don't need keys to start a horse as far as i don't know much about horses but i'm pretty sure you don't so you pretty could sure just you, don't. you need to go up the shops or mm. joe next door his nags just standing there i'll hop on it and off i go and no, i'll return it but what i've just done is i've just sweated you've said it's you, damn it you sweated my horse Blast it, you cad, <laughs> you cad and bounder. And, and I'd tied it up. <laughs> yeah. Not even one little knot. And yeah. they've gone and undone my great security work there. So what about if you had to go to really lowly unpaid work and you were running late mm. and you borrowed your neighbour's horse without mm. asking? Mm. Yes. Ish. Yeah, there's a lot of sweating going on. A lot of sweating. Yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah. Good it, Lord. Yeah. So I'm going to read this story which just blew my mind it's from the sun that's the sydney newspaper the 7th of june 1939 the headline is yawned herself into a good job it's from our special representative in london a luxurious animal-like yawn led to the selection of an exponent of the hindu yoga cult mrs evelyn vershoyle as a television announcer mrs vershoyle appeared last month in a television demonstration of the art of fatigue. It was arranged by a former chief of the British Secret Service in Russia, Sir Paul Dukes, and sought to prove that stretching and yawning like an animal increased mental and physical well-being. Mrs Vershoyle wore a bathing costume to demonstrate yawning, stretching and curling like a cat. Her suitability for appearances in television so impressed the Broadcasting Corporation's experts that they offered her a permanent position, although she is 35 years of age and other women announcers are in their early 20s. The art of fatigue. Are you a practitioner? Uh, I, I am, yeah. I'd, well, I'm an amateur. I'm an amateur. I, I've got nothing on. What was her name? Mrs. Evelyn Vershoyle. Art of fatigue. So and I love this Paul Dukes, who is the proponent of the art of fatigue, and he has put forth that it is... It pays off to study and emulate the movement of cats. Hmm. So he based his and theory. He's not on, talking the musical. He's not talking the musical. He based his theory on the fact that animals, in his observation, really suffer from insomnia. 
It's true. I've never had a cat or a dog in the morning say to me, geez, I slept badly. Yeah, night. that's true. He put that down to the fact that they stretch their limbs and yawn much more frequently than humans. Not in bathing suits. Though. Not in bathing suits. But how do you know that your cat, like, it might sleep 17 hours a day, mm. but for the cat that might be not enough. It might be, mm. oh, God, I really mm. missed my, I didn't get my full 21 hours today. Yeah, yeah. So Paul Jukes, the man of a thousand faces who'd had espionaged his way through Russia in the early 1900s. When his cover story when he was in Russia was that he was a concert pianist. So he's a concert pianist, a Hindu yoga slash art of fatigue expert, and he is the oh, only on. person who's Love been, God. Love surely. God, for surely. sure, for sure. Pretty handy in the sack. I bet he was hot stuff. He um, Surely a better model for Ian Fleming, you know, as a 007. This guy, if, if James Bond was into the art of fatigue and was stretching like a cat in his bathing suit. Oh, I, I, yeah, that's just, it adds a whole new layer. It does. You see Sean Connery come out of the surf mm. and he just does a downward dog. Yeah, nice. And all the villains just go, oh, God, whoa. If look at can, that stretch. He, if he can do that, yeah. we're in trouble. Yeah, they just put down their guns. Yeah. But he, this Paul Dukes dude is the only person who's ever been knighted solely for his espionage activities. So this bloke was... He was a super spy. A chief spy. He was the chief. He was the head of the British Secret Service in Russia in the Tsarist period. Who goes on, unselfconsciously, to become a proponent of this fairly kooky mm -hmm. art of fatigue. Yeah, and he's on TV. And he and Evelyn Virtshoyle, 10 years on from this point are still on BBC doing their Art of Fatigue shtick. So Mick, first week of June 1939, not a great time to be a submariner. No, not a great time to be a submariner. This, so we're talking, what, a few months before the war? So everyone's getting their subs ready and testing them out. And sadly, this did not end well for uh, the Thetis. This was proclaimed as the most advanced and best submarine in the world by the Royal British Navy, thus um, jinxing itself Titanic style. They took it out on its initial trials and it didn't submerge, which is pretty much an essential requirement for a submarine. Yeah. And its steering mechanism had been put on back to front. So it was kind of a bit jinxed from the start. So they sent it back to port, fixed it up and gave it a coat of paint before mm. sending it out for its next trials in Liverpool Bay. Which, of course, what these is what these tests are for. But there's a couple of things they missed. So in order to submerge the submarine, they flooded the torpedo tubes. And one of the torpedo tubes appeared not to have actually been flooded because the little pipe that, that you could use to test whether there was water in the torpedo tube was showing that there was none in there. Hmm. What had actually happened was that little pipe's entrance point had been blocked by some paint. It was gummed up with enamel paint. Gummed up with paint. So the, the guy thought, oh, well, that torpedo tube is empty it's mm. not hasn't got water in it mm. uh it's unknown why he took it upon himself to actually open the interior door of the torpedo tube but he did and then hundreds of tons of water flooded in mm. because the exterior part of the tube was also opened that's right and the, the submarine went to the bottom with its first two compartments flooded it was described as a perfect dive by onlookers. There was, there was a little tugboat nearby watching it and they said it's fine. They got the final words when they, there was communication, that diving, and down they went and they said the tugboat crew said it was a perfect dive. So they had no idea everything had gone terribly wrong. Not at that point. 
So there were 103 men aboard, which was close to twice the amount the submarine had been designed to carry because there was lots of engineers doing tests and so forth. It was due to come up after a couple of hours. The Thetas didn't come up. Then they Mm -hmm. started to realise something was wrong. Mm -hmm. They couldn't actually send any radio transmissions while submerged. So there was no contact with the submarine. Except the stern popped up. Well, that's because they jettisoned fuel and fresh water, which reduced the weight of the submarine at the back end. So, yeah, it popped up. So you end up with this bizarre sight of a stern popping up. So, yeah, there's this submarine's tail end jutting out of the water, a hundred men trapped inside. And weirdly, that's how shallow it was. The fact that the sub was sticking out of the water while also stuck in the mud. So, of course, to the outside world, as news started to spread that there was a rescue mission or that there was was an emergency, most people assumed that it's okay, well, they'll get out, obviously, because the sub's sticking up out of the water. It's not like fathoms below and lost, we know exactly where it is and we can see it. Yeah, and they were, you know, they were cognizant of the fact that these guys who were trapped in the sub were slowly suffocating because the air was being replaced by their exhaled carbon dioxide. That's right, and so too many, too many men... Too many men... Know, as, yeah, far more than usual would be aboard. But they were... The, the big challenge then was to try and actually cut the thing open to get men out. I mean, if a handful of men, four men managed to escape alive through this insanely complicated escape chamber situation Mm. where you actually had to flood this chamber, breathe through this rebreathing apparatus and then pop up to the surface. Four of them actually survived and got out before the actual Mm. escape chamber jammed. So these guys, the the authorities knew that the men were slowly dying, slowly Mm. being poisoned by their own gases, but they couldn't actually just cut a hole in it to to let the air in. I mean, they tried. could they? And were they not willing to damage their great valuable submarine that they were going to need for the war effort. And as some people suggested, did they delay or were they reluctant to do it just because of that? That's one yeah, One theory is that they didn't... They sacrificed the men to preserve the submarine, mm. which I guess is to some extent borne out because they then eventually, after they tried to lift the submarine off with cables, the cables snapped, it went down completely to the bottom of the, the seabed. All the men were then lost... But then they, when they recovered the sub and towed it back to English shores and months later opened it up, which must have been really ghastly, mm. they then said about you know relaunching the submarine as the Thunderbolt. It was rebirthed as the Thunderbolt and you've got this eerie submarine with this hideous legacy, which they'd all be aware of, the new crew and the whole world by then. Hitler himself sent condolences when the sub was stuck in the mud saying that all of Germany waited with bated breath anxious for news of of these crew. But then as the Thunderbolt, it goes to war against the Germans. Mm. And um, Hitler was less, yeah, he wasn't (laughs) so generous. He wasn't so generous at that point. And then all hands are lost when it goes to the bottom of the ocean after being depth charged. By an Italian, yeah. In the Mediterranean. Mm -hmm. And that was it, that time, not coming up. Yeah, the submarine that sank twice. Does any of this make you want to take a trip on a submarine? Uh, no, it tends to put me off just a little bit. You do kind of having, like, had, as we have read about the theatres, kind of think, oh, what could possibly go wrong? Yeah. Well, one of the accounts of how things can possibly go wrong was in the news that week under the headline Geelong Man's Experience, 
We had the grim ordeal of the crew of the Thetis was fully appreciated by one Geelong resident, F.E. Lowen, who claimed to have been a member of the crew on the submarine K-7, which was undergoing trials in the Clyde River in Scotland, where the shipbuilding yards are. And this story, to me, it's a classic story of, even if this isn't true, what an incredible yarn. He claims that the sub had sunk and the crew was made fully aware of their predicament and all that sort of thing, and word got around that they were going to draw lots. Those lots would be would determine who was to be fired through the torpedo tube in the hope that a floating object would attract attention. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And according to this story, one poor bugger drew that fateful lot, was shoved into the torpedo tube with a bit of canvas sewn onto his clothes explaining where they were and what their problem was and uh, basically come and get us. He shot out of the torpedo tube and he died, but thanks to his sacrifice... 30 other lives were saved. So they found the floating body and went, oh, okay, we should just read his clothing. He popped up and according to this, Mm. yeah, it was written on his clothes that below, you know, is is this sub and they were rescued. Four hours later, the submarine was raised by chains attached to lighters. Three of the men who were rescued later died from their experience. A posthumous Victoria Cross was awarded to this weirdly unnamed seaman who had sacrificed his life. quite hard to believe in a lot of ways in, in the sense that were they were the ships on the surface already looking? Because otherwise, he's going to pop to the surface and then float away. Mm. How did they know to look? And why couldn't they just shoot something else that was buoyant out of the torpedo tube rather than a live person? There are a few holes there. in this story, but I'm willing to go with it. <laughs> I'm willing just to go based with it. on the. I'm willing to go with it as the well. Drama the of drama. Being, imagine drawing the. Imagine drawing that short straw. Imagine being told. Uh, sorry. Sorry, it's you. Yeah. And imagine that they then realise, oh, God, that ink we used, it wasn't waterproof. Mm-hmm. Okay, you were the second in line, so it's your turn in the tube, fella. Up you go. And how long did they wait before they thought, okay, well, it was, had they got a second guy loaded into the tube when there was a, hey, we found you. Yeah. And the guy's yeah. like, thank <laughs> God. Whew, oh, you'd, you'd be throwing that into the movie adaptation of this. Absolutely. This week, 1939, first week of June... We have a celebrity arriving in oh, on the Australian shores who leaves one journalist most unimpressed. Under the headline, Does she hit a long ball or draw a long bow? This writer, Hugh Andrews, goes on to talk about this American golfer who he's clearly not impressed with. And he says, General opinion among Melbourne golfers about the reported golfing feats of Miss Babe Didrikson, the former American athlete who arrived in Sydney with her husband, George Zaharias, during the weekend is that she could not have been speaking seriously. And he goes on to pretty much diss everything that she claims to be able to do with a golf club, which is hit a ball a long way. I have to confess I've not heard of Babe Didrikson. Is she 
Neither had he, by the sounds of yeah, it. Yeah, well, he, it's his job at the time. He's a reporter. He's yeah. reporting on yeah. sport. Yeah. It's but, a, I mean, the actual headline says, does she hit a long ball or draw a long bow? Yeah. So it's basically saying she's full of crap. He, he is. And calling and was her... she? Well, calling her a former athlete is underselling it just a tad. Some people say she's the greatest athlete of all time. Definitely the, one of the greatest women athletes of all time. And uh, even then, like, so in 1939, she'd been playing golf for four years. She'd taken it up in 1935, which is remarkable because she'd already come fresh from the British Amateur Championships, which she'd won. First American woman to win them. Before that, she played basketball, softball, baseball and bowling all at top level. And she's still the world record holder for the longest baseball thrown by a woman. None of this went into this story. Mm-hmm. He, he just went on about how I just don't believe any of this. She claimed to have gone round coming in under par on golf courses with one arm, swinging it with one arm, and he pretty much just goes through and says all of this is nonsense. Clearly, silly woman. What she? What you know? What's she talking about? Something else he missed was that she had won two gold medals at the 1932 LA Olympics. She still is the only track and field athlete to win individual Olympic medals in running, throwing, and jumping events. She was like a gun javelin thrower. Uh, So she came from Texas originally, did all this incredible um, stuff on the sporting field, but she was also a skilled seamstress. She she sewed her own golf outfits. She sang and played harmonica. She recorded with Mercury Records, and her biggest seller was a song called I Felt a Little Teardrop, which she sang with her bestest buddy, Betty Dodd, who... She became friends with when her marriage was starting to fail. So this is 1950. And she and Betty used to like do a vaudeville act. And uh, they were said to be very good friends. It was... So they were lovers. It was pretty much open that they were lovers. Yeah, yeah. Babe was 20 years her senior. And Betty adored her. And in the same year, that 1950 year, it was a big year for, for both of them, Babe won the Grand Slam of all three major women's golf tournaments. And this is incredible that she's, she's a groundbreaker in so many ways. She was the first woman to apply to play in the US Open and was rejected on the grounds that she wasn't a man. And she was playing against men 60 years before it became a thing and beating them. And then she was diagnosed with colon cancer, sadly. She won her final Women's Open title in 1954 wearing a colostomy bag. Babe died in 1956, aged only 45, as an outspoken campaigner of cancer awareness. So wow. She, so she, so was, she packed an awful lot into a short amount of time. So she was really young when she came to Australia in 1939. Yeah, yeah, yeah And absolutely. this dude, this, this journalist just wrote her off without... Wrote a, her off completely. Miss Didrikson has stated that she hopes to break up lots of Australian pars before she leaves the country and that she always plays from the back tees. As in, she plays from where the men tee off, not from where the women tee off. He, so this is no, he, there's no handicap here. She's just no, she's not meeting them on any, their own terms. Yep, which is her and thing. beating them. Yeah, one of her famous lines. Apparently, she got she got quite riled. Fairly, you know, fair enough about uh, being accused of being too manly, and when accused of this, apparently one of her lines was, "I just loosened my girdle and let my ball have it." He hadn't picked up on any of this. And he or wrote, he had and just dismissed it. Dismissed it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And he, he ended with the line, there will be no lack of accommodation for any who may wish to wager that she will break the par of any of the leading Melbourne courses. That's how he ends it. So, so he's, he's saying, basically saying, 
there's going to be plenty of people who would be happy to put their money on her, not even managing to go under par because he doesn't rate her and his fellow Melburnians don't rate her as a golfer. And yet, mm. th- with this background, she famously, well, to me famously, turned up in The Simpsons. Marge Simpson, there's an episode, episode 21, I believe. To early days. Early days, where Marge dresses up as Babe Didrikson Zaharias, as she's referred to, and calls her the female Tiger Woods. Wow. And Marge sees her as this you know, great feminist icon, which she most certainly is, but... The gag being, no one remembers her. One more fact about Babe, she appeared as herself in the 1952 comedy Pat and Mike starring Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn. Oh, I have seen that. You I have seen, seen Babe. I did not know who she was. Mm, you've been seen. You've actually caught a little bit of Babe's best work. There you go. And that was close to when she passed away as well. Yeah. Well. In terms of uh, stories about female sports stars reported in a fairly dubious fashion, here's one from that week about... Dorothy Round. Dorothy Round had won Wimbledon twice and she was trying to make a comeback and take the title again. Dorothy Round had put on some weight. And this is the headline. Tut, tut. Fat but happy and still number one tennis hope. So Dorothy Round was reported as being three stone overweight. Outrageous. Outrageous. She weighed nine stone two pounds when she last won Wimbledon. And since then she put on... Three stone. Right. Having given birth and raised the kid. She had just given birth very recently. Right. I do love the fact that she didn't make any sort of apology for it whatsoever. Instead, she said, the only reason I've put weight on so rapidly lately is because I am so utterly and blissfully happy. There is nothing I love so much as sitting lazily about playing with my little son. Good for you, Dorothy, I say. She didn't win Wimbledon. She did give it a red-hot go. But she went on to a very successful career back in the States as a a tennis coach. So, good on her. And she was happy. And she was happy. For fat's sake. Shall we talk about child criminals? Oh, yes. Yes. The scourge. The scourge of June 1939. Mm. So, disturbing news in Juneau and country New South Wales, a child pulled down another child's pants. Mm. Outrageous case of decking. Mm. Boys' trousers taken in train prank. A, li- a little like the art of fatigue. It is the art of decking. And that, that, that is, a, in some ways, a long-lost Australian art. I think these days we'd be frowning on dacking. If one child dacked another child, there would be a bullying complaint. Michael, this is political correctness gone mad. <laughs> this is dax evasion at its worst. <laughs> All right, so from Dacking, we move on to Sydney, where a 12-year-old boy was busted as a bank robber. See, this is great, a boy bank robber. Detectives who had been searching for a desperate bank robber since Saturday made a capture late yesterday, a boy aged 12 living at Bankstown. What I love is that this kid admitted to breaking into a bank using a garden hoe to force open a window. So mm. security clearly wasn't a priority I love for this the, bank. Yeah. What do we use yeah, these days compared to back then? A, he had a garden hoe. A garden hoe. Just prized the window open. Mm. But he stole seven pence from a Christmas stocking. Mm. I love the fact that this theft of seven pence mm. had caused detectives to be searching for a desperate bank robber. He might have been gilding the lily. Possibly. Little, this reporter. Anyway, this kid was found and... 
He confessed to six other thefts in the district. He'd hidden away the proceeds from his crime, which could have possibly totaled as many as 15 pennies overall, mm. in various locations. Mm. The newspaper notes that the boy who came from a respectable family... I love that, that we have to say that he came from a respectable family. ...was taken to a children's shelter. Mm. So he's separated from his family. Do you think he went on to a life of crime after that? Yeah, or a life of prime ministership, because it could be it could be the one and only Paul Keating. He did live in Bankstown. Yeah, exactly. That's the, the hood. You know, was there a couple of like withering put down back chats to the to the coppers that went unreported here? Maybe. But finally in the Antipodean child crime wave, the best one of all, in Auckland, New Zealand, three boys were busted. With 1,000 sticks of gelignite. 1,000. And hundreds of detonators. They'd stolen all of these explosives from a magazine of brickworks and laid them all together, set it all up to blow up. Which the newspaper said if it had gone off would have demolished the brickworks and killed many people. Disaster was only averted because they'd set a candle to light the this length of fuse while they vermoosed and a puff of wind blew it out. Wow, it really twists that old saying about, you know, if it wasn't for you pesky kids, I would have got away with this. So it was actually the puff of wind that stopped the pesky kids from blowing up the brickworks in a good chunk of Auckland and probably themselves. themselves Yeah, surely. Yeah. Police discovered that many detonators had been given to various boys... (laughs) And the police had issued warnings that the mishandling of them might lead to instant death. (laughs) Police interviewed one boy who said he acted out of revenge. He will probably appear in the children's court. Probably. Probably. Back in Australia, you steal sevenpence and you go to a children's shelter. Yeah, yeah. Over in in NZ? Yeah. Steal a thousand sticks of gelignite and try and blow up a brickworks? You might go to court. You'll probably be let off. Good on you. Go on, you little scamp. Go on, you pesky kid. Ledwidge Lawler. Ledwidge Lawler. It's quite a name. Isn't it? Mm. There should be more Ledwidges. Mm. I think we should urge any parents-to-be who are tossing up children's names. So come on, Michael. Who was this? Who was this Ledwidge? Ledwidge Lawler was a man who this week in 1939 in Belgrave Square... Use a sawn-off rifle to take a pot shot at the Duchess of Kent as she drove out of her residence. Yes, although he wasn't Australian as reported. He wasn't Australian. Yeah, he was reported to be Australian. It actually emerged that he was born in New Zealand. Right. He probably was the father of one of the kids in the brickworks. Or is that just part of our long-running tradition of anyone we actually don't want to be Australian, we just shift them next door? Could be. Mm. Could be. There's, his past seems a little murky, in terms of he claimed to have been in the First World War with the Australian mm. Imperial Forces, but the army at the time said we've got no record of this guy. Mm. But there is one reference to him, which is he made the newspaper in 1928 when he and his ex-wife were battling for custody of their four-year-old son. This, the case itself is pretty unremarkable, except for the fact that he was represented by up-and-coming lawyer Robert Menzies. Oh, there's a name. There's a name. Hmm. I wonder how Robert would feel about his client 10 years on taking a pot shot at one of his beloved royals. Absolutely, considering he's probably the most sycophantic, famous Australian uh, in terms of royals. Mm. I did but see her passing by and all this nonsense. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So he probably wasn't too impressed that old Ledwidge went on to try and take a shot. Not not impressed at all. She was just popping out to see Wuthering Heights at the time, I believe. 
the Duchess of Kent was with her good friend, Lady Port Arlington, mm-hmm. and they were driving to go and see Wuthering Heights with uh, Laurence Olivier and Merle Oberon. They were just going to be part of an ordinary audience when Ledwidge took out his sawn-off gun, took a shot. The shot went wide and mm. chipped a wall or something. They didn't even know that there'd been a, a shot fired until later on. But a um, passing motorist saw Ledwidge and told the Daily Mirror, I was motoring with my wife through Belgrave Square when I heard a shot and saw a man sitting on the pavement holding a sawn-off gun. The shot narrowly missed my car. I asked the man what he was doing and he replied, Nothing. (laughs) As you do. This witness then summoned the cops and they ran him down, as in they caught him as he tried to flee on a bike. And then it turned out that he'd actually taken a pot shot the previous day at the Earl of Harewood's London residence and broken a window. He told the police, there is no need for this fuss. I'm entitled to have a gun. I have a certificate Mm, for it. Yeah, I'm allowed to have a pot shot at royalty. He then further said, a brother in Australia sent me the firearm. I sought it down because I wanted to carry it, lest it should be stolen. Yeah. The gun jammed a few days ago and I was trying to undo it in Belgrave Square when it went off. Likely bloody story, mm, bitch. Yeah. But the capper is this. I carried it, the gun, for several days when going to Buckingham Palace and Windsor, I wanted to see dukes and kings. Mm. Was he aiming quite high? Maybe he was. I, I just wanted to see them, not oh. wave my gun at them. Yeah, I don't know. Mm. Imagine mm. that if an Aussie had assassinated the King of England just before... The start of World War II. I think yeah, we'd be living in a different world That now. would have been a bit awkward. Yeah, yeah. a little bit. And well, he might never have str- explained himself. Might have strained the alliance somewhat. <laughs> well, he then, awkward. after he was, he was charged with fairly minor offences in terms of discharging a firearm in a public mm. place and what have mm. you, he wasn't charged with trying to assassinate anyone, but he did then write to the Duchess and said, I did not intend to hurt anybody. I was just a damn fool. Nobody will cheer more loudly than I when the Duke and Duchess come to Australia, because they were due to visit Australia right. quite soon after. And when yeah. they did, he was banned from being anywhere near them. Yeah. But when he got, he was deported from England, got back to Australia, gets back to Melbourne, takes a job in a munitions factory. Right. Yeah. Well, and the, he's got a bit of experience. The war is actually underway at this point, so it's fairly mm-hmm. sensitive work. And that didn't go terribly well when he was arrested in 1940 at the munitions factory for shooting two men in St Kilda in the back. I oh, see. Now, I was about to say, look, it, I, I believe poor old Ledwidge. I reckon he's, he's just having a bit of trouble with his firearm there. He didn't really mean for it to go off back in England. Now, mm, it doesn't look so yeah. good. Yeah. And the, the management at the munitions plant was like, well, we didn't know he was that Ledwidge Lawler. We knew he was Lawler, but we didn't know he was the Lawler. Mm. How could we? Apart, of course, from his name being Ledwidge Lawler and his face being plastered all over the newspapers for weeks on end the previous year. Yeah, he didn't know any of that, but he did know where the ammo came from. He did know. They found he had a lot of ammo. So he, he had a lot more random people to shoot. And it did turn out that he had been in and out of asylums in the early 30s. So Ledwidge was clearly a little disturbed. Mm-hmm. At his trial, his Defence counsel said he was not guilty via reason of insanity yeah. and he protested. I, I, I am saying I was just drunk. Yeah. They weren't having it. So he yeah. went to jail yeah. 
he didn't exactly help his defence there. And once again, no rhyme or reason as to why the hell he was shooting people in the back in St Kilda. There was just... It did seem that, like he said in court, he had some sort of condition that was aggravated mm. by drinking. Yeah. So he was drinking. One of the men he was drinking with was his cousin. They were having hamburgers and beers. Mm. And this guy turns around and Ledwidge has gone somewhere. And the next thing he feels a pain in his back and he's been mm. shot. Mm. And then a few hours later, Ledwidge again in St Kilda in a park just, you know finds some guys having beers and just shoots one of them in the back. And these guys were really badly wounded and lucky mm. to survive. So, Ledwich, don't, well, invi- don't invite him over for a beer. No, no, no. I'll, be, I'll be avoiding anyone called Ledwich from now on. And finally, in esoteric news... So this story, headed Doctor at Seance, begins by telling us that a, a doctor by the name of Dr Bothamley of Brunswick Street, Fitzroy, was in the Paran Court to tell everyone that Mrs Sylvia Riley of Leopold Street, South Yarra, was not a clairvoyant and that she had put someone in a trance. And the reason this was in court was because apparently it was against the law to tell fortunes. She was actually charged with having professed to tell fortunes. Dr Bothamley told the court that he saw Mrs Riley fall into a trance and he, he bought it, basically, saying this was no fake Her blood pressure and pulse varied before and during the trance and she spoke as six different persons with six different voices. There was also a policewoman there. Undercover. Undercover, presumably. Lily A. Smith said that she entered the house and uh, paid some money. Mrs. Riley then went into a trance and said to the undercover policewoman, you will come in for some money from a legacy. I can see marriage in about four months. You'll marry a professional man and be very happy. The judge wasn't buying this, so she ended up being fined and narrowly avoided jail. And Mrs. Riley told the court that she did not profess to tell fortunes. She had possessed psychic powers since she was six years of age. She's speaking in six different voices as six different people to this undercover policewoman. Mm. This undercover policewoman is getting value for money. Mm. Absolutely. She's clearly not telling the future because if she did, she'd say, well, I see myself with you in court. A little while down the track. Yeah, yikes. And then make a run for it. That's all the time we have this week. Join us next week when we go way back to 1954. Until then, remember, as JP Hartley said, the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.